Hello and welcome back to People Politics. Today we are joined by a special guest, Dr. Nigel Bowles from Oxford University, who is an expert in the politics and history of the United States, specifically in presidency. This is the first episode of a series we have with Dr. Bowles, exploring the president's influence over Congress, the executive and the public. We will be looking at how and even if the president can achieve this. We will start off the series by talking about presidential relations with Congress. Thank you so much for joining us, Nigel. It's really great to have you. (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about the president's power to persuade, which is an idea first introduced by Richard Neustadt in 1960. And it suggests that the president can only really get things done and make an impact using their ability to persuade. So we'll be starting off with the president's power to persuade in relation to Congress. And how far do you think the presidents rely on this power to persuade when it comes to Congress? Uh, how many years do we have to think about that problem? Um, well, I think we need to be clear about what we mean by persuade. And I think we probably need to be clear about what we mean by power and um, then think about power to persuade. Does power mean capacity? That's to say personal capacity. Um, Does it mean propensity? That is to say the likelihood of one's being inclined to attempt to persuade. Um, Does it mean intensity the capacity to bring an intensity to a process um or does it mean a willingness to use one's moral authority one's status if you like one's moral status one's moral standing think of it in terms of your relations with friends and colleagues um Are you more inclined to be persuaded by person X and person Y with respect to choices between options Y and Z? Is there an argument which someone might make that is likely to persuade you more than another argument? Or if the same arguments made by identical arguments made by two different people is the use of that argument by one person likely to be more persuasive than by another? And I think if you start to open, open up those questions of clarification and definition, um, the binary question that's so often put about presidents, can they persuade Congress, yes or no, just looks terribly naive and inadequate, superficial. Um, so thinking about it in interpersonal terms is itself quite complex but we're not just dealing with an interpersonal issue we're dealing with a structural issue and the structural issue here Jess is that structural condition of American politics is that presidents have remarkably little leverage over members of Congress. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that 
there are very few inducements that they can throw in that way. So there are very few positive reasons that they can give to a person who is otherwise undecided how to vote in a particular piece of legislation. Very few inducements. What might they be? There are soft inducements, such as um, building a relationship with that person socially. You know, quite intoxicating to be invited to a dinner in the White House. It's moderately intoxicating to be invited for a flight on Air Force One. It's triply intoxicating to be invited for a flight on Air Force One, followed by a campaign dinner at which the President of the United States declares to everybody attending that Congresswoman Jess is just the best thing since sliced bread and she's the essence of America. And the same goes for her colleagues, Holly Buckley and Rebecca Hamer. And that's why these three women deserve to be re-elected to Congress. It all sounds very good. And you feel better about a president who says those sorts of things about you because that's human nature. It's also a political calculation because you probably need his and someday her support. So is it possible for that to work at the margin? For a president to give the impression that you're on the same side, for a president to scatter his or her stardust on you? Sure it is. But the fundamental structural fact is that, and here there is a structural fact, that in a system of separated powers, as members of Congress, you three, you three Congresswomen, are dependent for your re-election on three things. One, raising sufficient money to deter anybody from challenging you in a primary. Uh, two, staying out of trouble, not getting involved in scandal. I mean, it's a negative point, but actually it matters quite a lot. Financial scandal, sexual scandal, doesn't matter. You just stay clean and you behave properly. And thirdly, working hard to maintain, to build and maintain your core, uh, your core support, the people upon whom you depend financially and organizationally and politically, the people who are going to go out to bat for you in difficult as well as in easy times, to maintain your core voting support, people who aren't actually important to you financially or organizationally, but people whose votes you regularly get. And thirdly, the margins of the coalition, your voting coalition, the people at the end, at the edge of that coalition spatially, who might be attracted by your opponent, whether in a primary or in a general election. So those are the three things you've got to do. And you'll notice that the president isn't mentioned in either one, two, or three. Now, none of that is to say the president doesn't, the president's support doesn't matter. It might, if you're in a tough race, it might. But equally, there are times, and I suspect 2022 will be one of them, where to have the support of President Biden in a tough race, a tough re-election race where you have to win, where you, as let's say, as a Democrat, as a middle-of-the-road Democrat, have to win some moderately conservative votes from voters in the middle of the distribution, Having Joe Biden make that argument for you might not be much much help because those voters might regard him rightly or wrongly as unacceptably well to that left. And in any case, as being unpopular. So 
the president's support may not actually be critical, and indeed usually isn't. Factors one, two, and three that I've mentioned, combined with gerrymandering of congressional districts to one overwhelming fact about the United States House of Representatives, which is that re-election rates are astonishingly high. They have been, with scarcely any exceptions, I think there are two exceptions, two minor exceptions, since the end of the Second World War, which is a heck of a long time ago now, since the end of the Second World War, um, re-election rates have never fallen below 90%. 90%? I mean, it's truly staggering. So the House of Representatives, every, every congressional district, every one of the 435, let me rephrase that, the great majority more than 95% of, of those 435 are characterized by huge stasis, by huge equilibrium. If you, if you are in, if you're an incumbent, you're overwhelmingly likely to be re-elected the next time, provided you meet those three conditions, provided you're politically competent, can raise enough money to deter your opponents and to run your own campaign, provided you stay out of personal scandal trouble, and um, provided you're, you work hard politically to maintain those coalitions. If you do those three things, the probability of your losing is nearly zero, unless you're really unlucky and your party nationally suffers a catastrophic loss of support over a two-year period, which can happen, but is not very common. Right, now... Let's think about presidential power to persuade under those circumstances. I mean, I would submit to you that the probability is that in most cases, president's power to persuade is pretty limited. Now, I'm not saying that at the margins it doesn't happen, but you've got to think about what arguments a president might deploy. What might he or she say? I mean, try the try the experiment now. Okay, so I, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a you know white-haired, 66-year-old member of Congress. I've been around for 25 years. I've won re-election reasonably easily every two years. I don't get into financial or sexual scandal trouble. I um, I do work hard. I have a decent relationship with constituents. I have a decent relationship with financial supporters. I'm reasonably articulate. I work hard. My constituents actually quite like me. This isn't like me, instead. this isn't Nigel, but I mean, I'm just imagining myself in that position. I'm that person. Each of you is the, can think of yourself as the President of the United States. And let us suppose that my congressional district is in West Virginia or Eastern Kentucky. And I'm a moderate Democrat. And I might accept privately that climate change is a real threat. Probably do accept it's a real threat. Um, but I also know that that's not what my median voter thinks. And my median voter has um, either works in coal, oil, or gas industry, or has extended family who do. And when they hear 
presidents, the Democratic presidents of the United States talk about energy transformation, what they actually hear is not climate change. What they actually hear is your family are going to be unemployed. I'm not judging whether this is right or wrong. I'm just asking you to imagine yourself in that kind of politics. Okay, so you, you now each of you think yourself into the role of President of the United States, and you wait. Let, let's simplify the example. You're now in the position where you've got all the votes lined up except one. Hey, guess what? I'm the one. I'm undecided. Okay, so what arguments are you going to put to me to vote in favour of your binding CO2? emission reduction targets by 2030. What arguments are you going to put? All I hear is silence, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing. They 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 really want to do what their constituents want. And I'm seeing that they have so many other loyalties that they're pretty unlikely to do what this one person, the president, um, actually thinks. Um, do you perhaps do you think it's indirect if the president is able to persuade uh, constituents, perhaps through their personality or something, if the constituents like the president, perhaps? Well, if the, the constituents like, if the constituents in eastern Kentucky or West Virginia or Montana or any other energy dependent state, Alaska, Oklahoma, Texas, if those constituents like the president of the United States so much and the president is so popular that then the president has leverage over me as a 66 year old member of congress that he wouldn't otherwise have but you're altering the condition and that yeah. condition doesn't obtain in 2021 with respect to joe biden and members of congress like that um who uh whose votes you need the fundamental yeah. point here is that a president's leverage is pretty limited. So that's what I think um, I'm about persuasion. And I've changed my mind about that, really, over the years. Um, I just have. Uh, I think I think as a profession, we pay quite, we, political science and historians, both actually, um, give too much weight to special phases in American history, to the New Deal, between 1933 and 1938 and to the Great Society between 1963 and 1966. And they were very unusual phases. Why are they unusual? Uh, they're unusual because you have exceptional presidents in power, in FDR and Linda Johnson, who, are, who have a feline grasp of politics. They are supreme politicians. Yeah. As people like me think we've worked out the next move on the chessboard, they are four or five moves, literally four or five moves ahead. Okay. So you're dealing with unusually gifted individuals. But the fundamental here is that between 1933 and 1938, the Democrats enjoyed not majorities, but vast majorities in the House of Representatives and in the United States Senate. One. Two, Roosevelt was enormously popular for almost all of that period, in exactly the way, Jess, that you've hypothesized that a president might be. 
And the same condition applies to the period between 1964 and 1966. The problem is those phases in American history are utterly atypical. So we can't really, we can't really generate, um, generate uh, propositions about the relationships between president and Congress from examples as unusual as that. You'll notice that the House is pretty evenly divided now. And the Senate is, Democrats have a nominal majority, the Senate is evenly divided. And you'll note that Joe Biden didn't win with a large electoral college vote. Um, landslides are pretty rare in American presidential politics. They are very common in congressional politics. That's to say, at the individual level, they are. It's not only the case that most members of Congress get re-elected, it is the case that most members of Congress get re-elected with more than 60% of the vote. Now, this is less true of the Senate, but it's still, there's a large, there are many states where, you know, even I, you know, I have zero political ability. Even I would have difficulty in losing if I were, you know, if, if I were running under the, running under the locally dominant party label. And then, you know, there's an old expression in American politics, um, in Texas politics, called yellow dog politics. And yellow dog politics means that you could you could put a yellow, enter a yellow dog as a Democrat or as a Republican in the right district, and the dog would win. Um, it's probably not quite true, but I mean, it's nearly true. So individual members of Congress tend to have very secure political bases, and that further reduces the potential for presidents to exercise persuasion. Now, none of this is to say that individual politicians aren't susceptible to um, that stardust impression. Um, and stardust experience of being in the White House and um, being taken seriously by the President of the United States, or at least being given the impression that you're taken seriously by the President of the United States, especially if that person is socially skilled and empathetic and intellectually powerful and engaging and gives you the impression that you are indeed the most important person in the world with whom this person has, the president has ever spoken. And people who get to be president are generally quite skilled at that. It's not because they're bad people or manipulative, it's just that's the water in which politicians swim. They do give that impression. And uh, so is it useful? Yeah, at the margin. So that's by way of thoughts about persuasion. The I think we do, however, need to bear in mind that the presidents have, if we expand persuasion to think about ways in which presidents can shape and reshape the context within which those members of Congress make their decisions, then we get into different territory. That's a different kind of a world. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that um, there's much to be said for the proposition that the that the the powers of the presidency are concentrated in two dimensions. Dimension number one is is deciding what's on the agenda. 
and dimension number two is framing items on the the framing those items on the agenda what do i mean by that what do i mean by by shaping the agenda well think about a teacher's relationship with his students in the sixth form politics course okay um any teachers <laughs> any teachers influence influence um over that uh, group of sixth form students is expressed not least in his or her capacity to say guys this is what we're going to be doing for them today or this is what we're going to be doing next week or even i suggest that we think about a b and c or would it seem sensible to think about d e and f or you choose between a and b and c but you're framing the choice you're setting the agenda you're framing the choice well that, that's a large part of what presidential power is actually all about. It is the capacity to say, as Joe Biden has said, the most important thing before the present, before the, the United States, the present, is economic recovery from COVID. Hence, you get the recovery bill, 1.7 trillion, which I have to say is a heck of a lot of money. You know, that is something of the order of 8, 9% of, G, of US GDP. That's an extraordinarily high percent. As a fiscal stimulus, that's just extraordinary. So that's number one. And the second thing he says, uh, says is, I'm simplifying, but this is the essence of it. The second thing is, and in the long term, we need to think about our the threats to our national security. And they arise from potential enemies real enemies such as Russia, potential enemies, China, and the unseen enemy, carbon dioxide. Okay, so he's setting the agenda. But you see also what he's doing in saying that is, is he's actually, he's not saying, I think we should actually make West Virginia miners, coal miners unemployed. Because that's not good politics. What he's saying is that Climate change is a national security threat. And that illustrates not just the agenda setting capacity, it illustrates the president's capacity to frame items on the agenda. In other words, it's not just the case he's saying, this is what we're gonna do. He's also saying, this is how I want you to understand what we're doing. This is how it's to be understood. Now, I suggest that if you put an agenda setting power and uh, a framing power, neither um, the second of which of course isn't mentioned in the constitution the first is the first is there in article two the president may recommend to congress such measures as he shall consider both necessary and expedient but the framing question is implicit in the agenda setting power if you put those two together and you have a, 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 a politically skilled person which joe biden is yeah, forget all this nonsense about him being ancient he is ancient but he also knows his job and he knows his way around washington better than any other elected person in american government because he's been a senator all his life he was a, he was elected he was actually elected to the united states senate before he was had actually reached the age of 30 which is the minimum age required to be a senator so he's been a senator for as long as it's been possible to be a senator so he's political to the ends of his fingertips and he's using those powers of agenda setting and framing as exercises in persuasion 
Now, he's not using the word persuade, but they are both in their way instances of persuasion. But what he's not doing is thinking about persuasion in terms of sitting down with our hypothesized Kentucky or West Virginia member of Congress and saying, you know what, I think that the, you, I really want your support on this climate change bill. And I don't give a damn about the fact that your constituents might lose their jobs as a result, because that just isn't politically smart. It's actually not humane either. You've got to give them better reasons than that. Um, and in particular, you've got to give them political reasons. And that member of Congress is not going to welcome advice which is politically clumsy because it might well, were it to be followed, result in him or her losing his or her job. And he doesn't think that's a good idea either. He neither wishes his constituents to lose his job and he doesn't wish himself to lose his job either. But if you think about setting the agenda and framing the agenda, and once you start to think about American politics and presidential politics in that way, you'll see instances of that agenda setting and framing everywhere. Um, then, then you think about persuasion in a much more, much larger, broader, broader way. Now, I submit to you that all presidents do that. Um, um, even in even supremely incompetent presidents such as Trump, um, uh, they are in their utterly cynical, you know, his in his utterly cynical way, he is attempting to set the agenda. And I have to say, I have to acknowledge that he was very good at it. He was extraordinarily good at it. I mean, it, I, I think if you were to look at, if you were to identify a field where he's actually changed the agenda semi-permanently, it's on China. I don't think he did it on climate, but I think he's done it on China. Um, I think that his, I think that, um, I think that other Republicans and indeed President Biden have been, are being constrained to be um, more hawkish on China than they might otherwise have been precisely because Trump found it so politically rewarding. And that is a racialized fact. I have no question in my mind about that. Um, but it's also the case, it's also the case that the Chinese communist government um, is very good at supplying real reasons why that's not entirely a crazy disposition. If you're president of the United States, it's not crazy at all. I mean, China is a real, real threat on a number of dimensions. So all presidents do it for good reasons, whether for bad reasons, whether you approve of them, whether you don't, whether it's a large scale um, revolution, such as um, those that Franklin Roosevelt initiated um, with regard to um, with regard to providing pensions through the Social Security Act in 1935, probably the most cons single most consequential piece of domestic legislation in, in 20th century America, um, still on the statute books today, utterly transformative, completely transformative, to remove effectively to remove extreme poverty from old age. I'm staggering achievement. Um, so. That really, that's really consequential. And if one thinks about the transformation of the world after 1945 under Harry Truman, internationally and domestically, it's it's about agenda setting and framing items on that agenda. 
So what are the limitations of persuasion? So I think if we think about persuasion more expansively in the way that I've just laid out, you know, it becomes really rather interesting. Um, what are the limitations to it are, I suppose, twofold and they're connected. Um, there's an underlying assumption here that presidents set the agenda and nobody else does. And that's not true. It just isn't true. Um, social movements can, can set agendas. They did in civil rights. They have done and they continue to do in rights of ethnic uh, minorities. Uh, there's no question about that. The notion that it's just government that sets agendas is not the case. Agendas are set by journalists, by writers, by activists, by social activists, uh, by women and men doing, saying, up with this, we will not put, we need to build a better society, da 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 whatever. Agendas are set outside government, but they have impacts upon government, uh, impacts within government. First thing that needs to be said, and that's classically true of civil rights. It's spectacularly true of civil rights. And the civil rights, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People under the leadership of Thurgood Marshall um, in the 1950s was critical in linking um, the um, growingly powerful social movement, civil rights movement among African-American people but not just among African-American people, also among Hispanics, um, in linking those social movements to state action, and especially to judicial action. And this point's often missed. Social movements, social movements um, leverage their effectiveness to the extent that, and this is a point about um, democracies, law-governed democracies, it's a particular point about the United States, to the, they leverage that influence to the extent that they're able to bring cases before courts to test the law. So the school desegregation cases in the 1950s didn't emerge just like as an explosion from nowhere. They built upon decades of work by African-American um, representative groups challenging the practices of segregation on grounds of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, namely the guarantee of equal rights, um, and simplifying enormously um, and compressing our time horizons more than I should those efforts met with very limited success until 1944 when we saw significant a significant uh, movement in the supreme court um on the question of the constitutionality of all white primary contests in the south and all white primary contests mattered enormously because in the South in 1944, Republican Party, the Republican Party scarcely existed. It was a one party region. So to the extent that uh, social movements can use state institutions, courts in particular, they can take legal action, they can litigate to overturn the existing political order. And that's exactly what happens with school desegregation. And it's what happens successively 
with um, with desegregation in the 1960s, not in a simple linear way. You know, we don't move from position of pure segregation to pure desegregation, nothing like that. The United States remains as, alas, the UK does in many parts of the this, this country, um, a remarkably divided society. But such progress as there has been has owed a great deal to the willingness of social groups to use litigation to advance their advance their objectives. So that's a that's a significant uh, constraint, uh, and it's a means of circumventing Congress. You know the reason the reason that the NAACP in the nineteen one of the reasons that the NAACP acts through the courts in the 1950s and 1960s is precisely because Congress is just an otherwise immovable obstacle. It can't be circumvented. And the longevity of individual members of Congress and the bias that uh, the institutional bias of Congress to perpetuating existing conditions, existing circumstances um, is a material consideration here. So we need to think about social movements uh, here and ways in which Congress can be circumvented. But uh, I want to make two additional points about presidential power to persuade and the limitations upon it, upon the notion of persuasion. Because it matters, because what we've been talking about so far is mostly about domestic policy. And if you think about national security policy, or more specifically about the deployment of force abroad, you have a completely different, a completely different picture. Now, again, I need to emphasize it was not the case for most of the 19th century or the first half of the 20th century. But since the Korean War, since 1950, and it happened very, very suddenly, this change happened very suddenly. Presidents have, for the last, for the last 70 years, presidents have enjoyed I would argue, might not have universal support, I would argue that presidents have enjoyed, if that's the right word, a degree of freedom under the Constitution to deploy force abroad, which the Constitution absolutely does not give them. And there's no persuasion involved here, at least in the short run. In the short run, presidents can deploy force abroad effectively unhindered and unfettered. There's no constitutional support for that whatsoever. But nevertheless, they can do it. That's to say they are able to do it. And it's to say they are able to get away with it in the short run. And you can, the, the, how short the short run is depends upon the duration for which political support can be generated and sustained. Um, so, uh, you can do it in Vietnam in the short run, and it was done. You can do it in uh, Kuwait and Iraq in the short run. You can do it in Afghanistan in the short run. You can't do it in any of those places in the long run with or without congressional support, because congressional support will drift away as public support for that opera, those operations itself declines. So there's that connection, Jess, and you made that point earlier. There's that connection between constituents, voters, and members of Congress. And it's a really important link. 
It's a really important thing, and it's a constraint upon presidential capacity to act abroad. But that presidential capacity to act abroad is very considerable. And the uh, no persuasions involved. That is an act of command. So what a president can't do in domestically, which is to command or well, which is to determine that X will happen with regard to the deployment of troops, a presidential command is a presidential command and he is commander in chief. And if he determines that X will happen, X will happen if it's a military move. But what no president can do is to determine that the political that the political objective in support of which that military move is made can be achieved. That can't be done. That can't so authority in the sense of command takes you so far, but only so far. But it can take you quite a long way and it can cause an enormous amount of damage. An enormous amount of damage. And if the last 12 months has taught us anything, it's also taught us that the costs of presidential inaction can also be devastating. So let's just imagine a counterfactual. So against all that we know about his psychology, all that we know about his background, all that we know about his inadequacy, let's just take that 1% chance that in, on March the 18th, 2020, just 12 months ago, President Trump had called a meeting with the majority and minority leaders of the Senate, Speaker, Democratic Speaker of the House and the Republican majority leader in the House, and had said to them in the White House, we are facing a national emergency. I'm going to set ideology to one side. All my prior assumptions about what the federal government can do and what it can't do, what it should do and what it shouldn't do, I will set to one side. And I want your support in convening a major national emergency response, which will have the support of all Americans and defend all Americans in the cause of reducing to a minimum the deaths from COVID, which otherwise will overwhelm us. And if he had supported that by putting America's, uh, by putting the Center for Disease Control and America's best immunologists and virologists in a working party which met daily and which reported to the President of the United States and about which he gave two press conferences a week and said that he would pay attention to nothing else for the next 12 months. I submit to you that the United States would have had a death rate less than half of that which it's had. So there is a cost of presidential, there can be a cost of presidential inaction, as there can to presidential action. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan have costs, they're complex costs, um, but inaction also has costs. And in history, we have no we have no controlled experiments, so we don't know what would have happened if something different had happened. But it is beyond my imagination that a diff that differently handled um, a COVID response of the kind that I've outlined wouldn't have had vastly better results than the ones the United States has experienced. Rather long answer to your question, I'm afraid. No, that was very, very interesting, because as well, um, I think we all do modern history, so that was really interesting to see the links between, I mean, it's so irregular in uh, history, really, it's quite incredible.
say more, Jess? Well, yeah, it's just interesting because I feel like it's very much down to the individual president. We see some, I would, you could possibly argue, are puppets of the people, whereas some, such as probably Trump, it can be totally up to their personality. And I, I don't know, rightly so, because it is a democracy. The relationship between the president and the public is fundamental and key to the entire thing, really, whether that's indirectly through Congress or through, you know, framing the policy to the public, through, you know, it. yeah, I think, no, it's all very interesting. <laughs> Two interesting points arise from what you've just said that, that occur to me that we, you might want to think about. First is, um, America is a sort of democracy, um, but you know, what do you expect of a democracy? Um, I mean, it is, it is, uh, it was not created as a democracy. It was created actually explicitly in opposition to democracy. Um, if there was one one proposition which united, I think it united pretty much everybody at the Philadelphia Convention in 1797, it was what they didn't want was a democracy. What they created, sought to create, was a republic. Well, think about it. They're creating a republic with three branches. The president is not directly elected. He is indirectly elected by an electoral college. And the only people who appear in those in that electoral college are white men who own property. Um, that's consistent with the republic. It certainly isn't consistent with the democracy. Think of the United States um, court system, the federal court system, Supreme Court downwards. They're all appointed, and there is implicitly, though not explicitly, implicitly, there is in the Constitution a power of judicial review. It's not explicit, but it's implicitly there. Point two. Point three, um, think of the United States Senate. The United States Senate is not directly elected under the original Constitution. Only in the early 20th century does it come to be directly elected. It's indirectly elected by the states. And those states are composed, those states' legislatures are composed of um, even up to the early 20th century, almost entirely of white men, not with property necessarily with property qualifications, but with white men. And think of the House. This is the popular branch of American government. And that popular branch of the American government has as its constituency, as you perfectly well know, um, white men and only white men. And from which Native Americans and African Americans and all other ethnic minorities are are excluded in two cases explicitly so. So um, it's not a democracy in 1787. It requires something of the characteristics of one by 1832, something of the characteristics of one. But it's still a racialized democracy. It's a racialized democracy until the mid 1960s, which is, yeah, I, in historical terms, very recent past. So uh, I would I I think I I just caution against that notion, and I think um, the notion that America is a democracy. And mo uh, in thinking about that proposition, I think that the America's commitment to democratic values and to what democratic values are is 
not settled and it never has been settled. Thank you for listening to this episode with Dr Bongs. In our next episode, we will be speaking more about the President's power to influence the executive. We hope to see you there.